Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody knows X's and O's. Everybody can go on the chalkboard. The thing is, there's people behind those X's and O's. And there's different personalities. There's different kind of mindsets to some of these guys. And the bottom line is, my job, it was to get these kids ready to play. And if I see something, you know, and I guess where the culture comes out is, I refuse as a player and I refuse as a coach to be outmanned physically. I really believe that. I think you win a lot of football games that way. The thing is, getting to that point of physicality, that matches the mental toughness that I think is missing in the game today. Today's episode is one I'm bringing back from the first year of the podcast with a good friend of mine, Jim Meyer. I coached with Jim Meyer at BW. He was our defensive coordinator and defensive line coach, but Jim made his way around every division in college football. He was also a high school football coach. One of his notable players was LeBron James. While he was at the University of Akron, he coached Jason Taylor. And I was fortunate to be able to not only coach with Jim Meyer, but become his friend. And he's somebody who I really look to in coaching to learn a lot from in my time there at BW. So I know you will enjoy this one. He's a great guy. And I'm going to have him back here soon. So here's my podcast with Jim Meyer. Coach Meyer, it is awkward to talk ball with you this way through the podcast because so much of our talk has been, you know, in a football office or over a cold one. So it's a little odd to be talking to you on the podcast, but it's great to be able to talk to you again and talk football with you here. Always a pleasure, Keith. You know that. On or off the field, on the podcast, wherever we we can talk football, it's good for me. Well, Coach, let's share a little bit of your background. As you like to say in, in recruiting meetings, you coached at every level, Division One, Two, Three, Four, Five. That's mm-hmm. where your you know a little bit of your age six, starts seven. to show, right? Yeah, there's not a four, five, six, seven, <laughs> but you have been able to coach at at every level. You know, what's the common thread you've seen uh, in being able to coach high school through Division One? Well, I think the biggest thing is balance. When you go to a situation, uh, no matter where you go, no matter what level. Of course, yeah, I love the game. I think that's one thing I truly love the game for what it offers me satisfaction-wise. That's why I keep doing it. But on the other hand, it has to have balance. I think every place I've been to, there have been some awkward balance, more work than play, hours, and this and that, which is all part of the job. But in the long run, throughout the whole year, every place I've been to, I was able to establish balance between family life, coaching the game, and those things that are really important that one doesn't override the other. And I think that's the 
common thread. Uh, in Division Three, for instance, early on, you did a lot of things. You wore a lot of hats. When I was at Bethany College in Kenya, I lived a mile from the house. So the family life was good. And I think that established the base for my family and the kids. As they got older, I went with Division One. It got a little bit more, I would say, demanding. We still had a young staff at the time of Akron that everybody had kids that are 10, 11, 12. And so we were able to at least keep balance there. But I would say the common thread basically is balance and quality of life. Coach, uh, I'm not surprised that you said that. You and I have talked about that quite a bit. And that is for a lot of people that's elusive in this game. What recommendation would you have to, you know, that young coach out there who thinks that, you know, he has to outwork everybody. He's going to have to spend more time in the office, sleep in the office, all those things. What's the advice you have to creating that balance between, you know, football, between life? And, and I agree. I know you. I mean, you're a guy who is in the office. He works when he has to. But I think the point you made, the balance is that, you know, when you look back on the last 12 months, that it had us all balanced out with the ability to spend time with your family, too. I think a large part of it. He comes down to the boss. I think the boss has to be in a position where he establishes the outlines of what can be done and what time. A lot of bosses don't say anything. They just want you just to go, 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 go. And, and then if you know, you're in the office, you want to leave, and then somebody else is sitting there, whatever they're doing, past 10 o'clock. I mean, what can't he possibly do at the same time that we do? Now, the results of hard work obviously is success. But if, if you work hours and hours and hours, I've got some of my friends are famous that uh, lost their marriages and things because of the fact that it, it overrode everything they were doing. Work, work, work. And that's fine. But the results of it is if it affects the other part, even if you're having success, is it really successful if you're, you're missing out on the other aspects? So I'll give you an example. Uh, we have practice times. You know, say we practice from 3.30 to 6.30. Well, here's, I've been with coaches that get their kids out there 15 minutes, 20 minutes before practice, and then they'll stay 10 or 15 minutes after practice, and I'm the one who's leaving practice on time and starting on time. But the kids look at that and say, hey, this coach is here earlier, or this coach is staying later. So it creates a, not only, I won't say competition, but I will say kids are observant, and they know that this guy's doing extra stuff, but the head coach is allowing them to do extra stuff. In the meantime, you're trying to stay on a schedule that's conducive to the kids. Now, we've all been around kids. They'll, they'll do anything we want them to do. They'll spend the time they need to spend. They'll do the extra stuff, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think you have to, as a head coach, and a coach that is – I'm looking at younger guys looking at their head coach. There's a start and end, and I think you need to work your butt off to get things done in that period of time and not go over it and not start before it. Meeting times as well. We got guys who want to meet. Any spare time they have, they want to meet. But it's really effective. And I think you have to look at the effectiveness of the hours you put in and what the kids can assimilate during that period of time. Are they really, after an hour of meeting, we've talked about this, Keith, you know, the guys have 25, 30 minutes, especially a college kid who's studying all night and thinking about other things other than football. How much of that is going to soak in? I think it's the talent of the coach to be able to get the point across in that specific amount of time. And I think that's a huge part of it has to do with the boss. He's the guy that has to turn the lights off at 10 o'clock when the coach is sitting there working and say, well, look, at you know, you can start this in the morning. Uh, as Jim Dennison used to say, um, coach in, um, at the University of Akron, I was a graduate assistant and a student assistant at 10 o'clock, the lights go off. He said, nothing goes in. No new plays go in after 10. 
that's before the video stuff. We had to do things late on Sunday, Mondays, and Tuesdays. And then Wednesdays tapered off. Thursday was family night. So you had specific times. You knew at 10 o'clock that Coach D was going to shut the lights off and say, I don't care what you guys are talking about, but it's not going in. <laughs> not after 10 o'clock because of fatigue, because of everything else. So I really do believe that the boss is a big part of that. And I think the kids have to uh, understand that more is not necessarily better. And I know you've talked a lot about Jim Dennison and, you know, the influence he's been on you, especially in terms of learning to be organized and how you can almost set a clock on him, not just a clock, but a calendar as well. It's you knew you're going to have some consistency from him as a boss. And, and here's the expectations. Here's when we do this and that he was really good about being organized that way. How has that been an influence mm -hmm. on you? It all stems from playing for him as well as coaching with him as a student assistant at grads. I never really worked with him as a full-time coach other than graduate assistants are full-time coach. But the beauty of it is after, you know, I got into the coaching profession as a full-time guy, Jim Dennison's name would come up all the time as far as his organizational skills. I was talking to an official. This is like before he retired at Walsh. I mean, the guy's been officiating his scrimmages for 25 years, and he knows exactly on the calendar when he's going to scrimmage in the summer <laughs> against his own guys. He's ready. He puts on his calendar. He knows this is the third long scrimmage. It's the third day of camp. And then they look it up. They know exactly when it's going to happen. I think so. it's not a fault. I think it's a point where coaches can work within the uh, outline of Coach Dennison or your organization as far as getting the work done. If you need more time to be more organized during that time, I think that's fine. I think there's something that you know, if you're confused about a certain coverage or a play that you want to put in and you really have to iron some things out, that happens. We all know that happens. But in the meantime, you know, when that two-hour time limit is up, it doesn't matter what we're doing. We're off field. And it has it's had a strong influence on me ever since. Coach, I know in working alongside you, that defensive unit that you coached was always going to kind of have an attitude, kind of have a culture of their own. Uh, yet within, you know, what we're doing in the framework of a team. And, and a lot of that would just really it mirrored your personality. They really started to take on a lot of who you were. Our coaches, you know, we talk about on the show all the time, building culture, the buzzword, you know, being culture. But, you know, it's really about mm -hmm. building that chemistry, that attitude. How do you do that with your players? I actually never had the privilege of sitting in your meeting rooms and seeing what's going on there. But I saw the results on the field. How did you do that? Well, you know, again, this has become a big problem for me, especially with the new rules in the NCAA. The new rules, they took two days away, and, you know, spring balls and Division three at least is non-padded. And our job is what I really believe, and it's all part of building the culture, is to prepare our guys for the brutality of the game. I've always told our guys, I will do everything I can in my power to get you ready to play. And you're not going to like it. I mean, some of it is it's not fun. But you don't want to be that guy. And you can see the stares in the faces. You know, we're watching the Cavs beat the Toronto Blue Jays. You can just look at the faces of the Toronto Blue Jays when they know they're going to be defeated for the fourth time. You know, look, that loser look on their face that says, wish I could have done more. Let's start that question over. You call them, you call them the Blue Jays. <laughs> well, same thing. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a Raptor. What the hell? It's Toronto, isn't it? It's Toronto. All right, we'll, we'll roll. Okay. <laughs> Well, you know what I mean. You know, yeah, I know. And, and you know what? It's that look you see. I don't want that look on my players' face. You see kids crying at the end of the games, and they pour their hearts out. You know, if I had to cry after a game, it's because I didn't do enough. Uh, and I really believe that as a player. I never cried after games. And I didn't think everybody reacts differently to a loss. But I always felt as a player, 
we were ready to play. And they got, we got beat. Okay, so I, we got beat. But I, it's not because I wasn't ready. If I wasn't ready, uh, I'd probably cry more as a coach than a player. But uh, as a player, I think you want to feel when you go on that on that field, you, you're going to win this football game because your coaches have prepared you not only just for the you know the X's and O's. You know that's all. Everybody knows X's and O's. Everybody can go on the chalkboard. The thing is, there's people behind those X's and O's, and there's different personalities. There's different kind of mindsets to some of these guys. And the bottom line is, my job it was to get these kids ready to play. And if I see something, you know, and I guess where the culture comes out is, I refuse as a player and I refuse as a coach to be outmanned physically. I really believe that. I think you can win a lot of football games that way. The thing is, getting to that point of physicality that matches the mental toughness that I think is missing in the game today. It's all part of the softening of practices, the confessions issue. I'm not saying they're they're not issues, but you can't play scared, and you and you got to play ferocious in this game. Because it is the greatest game uh, in in the world, as far as just total team effort, total team continuity, and, and eleven guys, all different body types, speed, skill, big, strong. You know, they're not. Every position has a different uh, set of skills, so those combined skills have to be working together for a whole football game. And the only way it does that is top physical conditioning, and when the chips are down, are you mentally tough to handle it? No, our first year. Keith, we had that situation a little bit at Ball of Walls where our guys fought hard, but when things got a little bit down, you just see the mental toughness of the game kind of fizzle away. You know, we were, and when we built that back up, and I think that's what you got to do. You, you got to have a mental toughness as well as physical toughness that creates the culture that you want. You want to be able to beat that son of a gun's ass every freaking play. And you know you got to you got to resign the fact that once in a while they'll get you. You know it takes it takes a badass to think about getting beat once in a while. And Keith, as a player, I've got my ass kicked, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not fun. And you know, in the weight room, I just remember at one time I was going against Ball State, a young freshman coach put me on one play. This tight end was all conference tight end, and he just wrecked my ass. And ever since then, my whole inside shook, and I said I'll never let that happen. I did hypers. I did sit-ups. I, I could never get that feeling again. But you got to resign the fact that the other team practices and they work out too. So you got to match or exceed what you think they do because you don't know what they do. And I really believe in coaching and when I have anything to do with the strength program, the conditioning aspect of the things, I make it as reasonably hard as I can and I focus in on the mental aspect of things. And I, and I think today's game is won by the tough teams that are physical, but they're also mentally tough. Absolutely. You know, and I, I spent some time uh, a couple weeks ago talking with Larry Kimbaum about this issue of the reduced practice time, you know, the elimination of, mm-hmm. of the two-a-days. And, you know, I think you would agree with this. Number one, first of all, the game is always going to be a tough man's game. You have to be tough to play this game. Uh, number two, we've been as coaches pretty smart about what we do with our players. You know, what right. you grew up on, what you came through as a player. We're not doing those things anymore because we've learned more. We know better. I think, you know, mm-hmm. you'd see it in our practices. You know, there'd be only a handful of times every year where we'd be live and taking people to the ground that we're smart about. You know, as you like to say mm-hmm. all the time, let's not sharpen the knife dull. 
Let's make sure we're shar- right. our sharpest and we're ready on game day. So as coaches, professionals, we've really been smart about that. Yet at the same time, I think we know that the game right now is probably safer than it's ever been, not just because of the equipment, right. but because of coaching. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the challenge, like you said, right now, I think you agree, is how do we do that? And we're going to have to. And the best thing about coaches is we solve problems. But we'll find a way to be able to get that done and, you know, get these guys ready for a game day. It's going to take a shift, though, in our thinking now because we've been given a different set of rules. Well, you know, Larry's a good friend of mine and a very intelligent football coach. And if you you know, you've talked to him before, and he, he might be one of the best coaches in the country, bar none, uh, insofar as his intellect for the game, his knowledge of all the positions. What appalls him more than anything else is some doctor is telling us how to coach football. You know, and his whole premise, their whole premise of less is better, less practice is better, doesn't make any sense in the long run. You know, especially with the, I would say, I won't say that Division Three is an inferior athlete, but they certainly aren't Division One. They need more work than anybody else. They need to have training. They need to know how to tackle. They need to know how to be tackled. They know how to block protect. All sorts of things that only can be taught through contact. Now, I think the the art of coaching is understanding what your kids can and cannot do. I remember Don Bucci at Youngstown Cardinal Moody. That guy, uh, when he was the head coach, they practiced till 10 at night. They had one light, and they practiced it when it got dark, and they were always in state playoffs. And I know another guy that they might hit on Tuesday and – those kids were ready to play. So whatever the art of coaching is for that coach is to be respected. But I think the over-regulatoryness of the Ohio High School Athletic Association, the NCAA, is because they count minutes now of contact during practice for high school. Come on, minutes? Keith, who's going to enforce minutes? I'm thinking to myself, okay, is there a guy with a stopwatch out there? You know, you get the kids contact what they need in order to prepare themselves for a game. Because there's no... Uh, nobody's going to call up the dogs in a football game when the bullets are live. I mean, it's, you know, so you have to practice to get those kids ready to play. And I do think that promotes probably bending the rules that a paradox a coach may have is, yeah, I'm going to follow the rules, but I want my players to be ready and they may conflict. So what do you do? You know, and that's, I think that promotes that mm-hmm. and it takes the coaching profession, you know, puts them to a test. Now they got a time limit on how many, how many minutes of contact you have for a high school kid. Don Bucci would have been fine, but Don Bucci would have been, uh, <laughs> I don't know how many, how many hours of contact he had a practice, <laughs> let alone minutes. So, right. You know, and his kids were ready to play, and no one ever complained. I, I do think it's uh, become over-regulated, and it's just a result of a lot of the climate of where we are as far as football is concerned. Coach, you want to flip gears here a little bit and talk – get into talking a little ball and uh, in my time at BW we were really good at fooling defenses with the naked we could with the way we were play faking things we were doing we were able to you know you'd see on on all those plays multiple defenders running and chasing the ball and we're out on the edge Mm -hmm. yet in practice I was unable to do that against you guys and you guys were pretty not pretty good. You guys were really good at, at the, defending the naked, defending the perimeter with your defensive line. Uh, talk to us a little right. bit about what you teach them, because I know you had uh, your uh, your little routine that they need to go through in their head. Well, first of all, philosophically, if you can shut down the outside perimeter game uh, with every offense, you're going to shut down almost half of it. I really believe that once 
you've shut that down, then the the offense has to do something else to beat you. If they start getting the perimeter game going on, yeah, you're going to get beat. So what we've done is, and think this is a lot of it has to do with Lee Owens and and Paul Winters when I worked with them at Akron and, and um, Ashland. They're boot guys. I mean, they're perimeter strong, perimeter naked boots, counters, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the bottom line comes down to we had to defend that all the time. So there's always two guys on the outside of every perimeter. And the, the outside guy, we used to call him the blader. The inside guy was called the razor. And it could have been anybody. It could be a corner blitz. It could be a linebacker blitzing from the outside. But one of those two guys had the duty of making sure that everything stays in front of him, squeezing the line of scrimmage on a fear block and keeping the upfield shoulder the deepest back in his vision, wherever he is. Could be an end. It could be a tackle who's coming around. It doesn't matter. The inside guy can get faked out. He can try to tackle. If it looks, if it's a fake, tackle it. You know, and that always saved us the perimeter. You know, you guys try to do that, and we told all our defensive ends and anybody who's a blader, the outside guy, blitzing from the outside, whether it's like a safety corner, linebacker, defensive end, doesn't matter. When that ball goes away, you got to squeeze. We call it. Take, you know, cut the fat between yourself and the end man. And always look upfield and keep your shoulders square to the line of scrimmage and make sure nothing comes back. So we had, we had a dance. So we defended against the kickout, counter, cutback, reverse, boots, and naked. And now we have the bluff play, you know, and they're, they're starting to come. They're starting to get smarter. They're starting to, on the counters, we want to spill, and then they're faking the counter. Now the guy's spilling to no one. Then the doggone fullback goes to the flat and he's wide open. So we've kind of evolved over the years. Now we have the bluff and part of that. We, we practice it over and over again, but we only do it with the ends. We really don't do it with anybody else. When you're a blader, you got to keep the upfield short of deepest back in your vision. Now, if you're on the opposite side of the play, then you become the wingman. And the wingman is the guy that makes sure nothing comes, nothing comes back. Make sure the ball crosses the line of scrimmage. That way it takes any way of cutbacks, any way of quarterback who may dip in and dip back out. And and sometimes we're successful. Uh, every now and then a good athlete can get outside us, and that just puts so much pressure on your secondary. But if we know that wingman's there, the full players can run to the ball, knowing that if the guy does cut back, we got somebody there to help us. So on the uh, boot end of things, when we get that veer block, we kind of watch what those guards are telling us, if it's a kick out or a counter or a, or is he in a boot you know, that boots, they stepping in and trying to get outside is kind of thing. We work it every day during the season. We, we do it on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Uh, it's all part of our, we call it um, fear drill. And our ends are really, really, really good at it. And as you know, Keith, you got us a couple of times <laughs> where, you know, those kids' eyes see that ball. They think that guy has that ball and they're chasing a ghost. I mean, that guy is, you got our one of our best ends, Ron Hamilton. I still remember him tackling, but tackling the fake ten yards downfield, and I think you took a picture of it. I did. I put it, it on his, his locker. locker. <laughs> <laughs> He's never forgotten that. Uh, so we don't want to get we call it a Jedi mind trick. We don't want to get Jedi mind trick because every offense is going to try to do that. And you know, I think if you, you you understand that the offenses really can't do things in the perimeter without sometimes it's so good you get faked out. But you got to realize you got to be disciplined enough to know that when that ball goes away or somebody's coming at you, you, you got to really be able to react to field those. Is, is, is it a power play? Is it a play that he's trying to get outside me? 
If you squeeze too hard, they're going to pull you outside and log you. Yeah, we worked so much, we worked so hard on it. But the blader razor concept has taken away, and doesn't always because they get you. Because if you have an inexperienced linebacker or a corner on a corner blitz or a strong safety blitz to the outside, another blader, they're not used to squeezing that fat and look at the, they'll get faked out. So we gotta let them know. So you can't get faked out. That's somebody else's guy. You got a razor. That guy inside you is going to tackle that guy, not you. But they get us once in a while. But it's a lot of reps, my man. A lot of reps. Oh yeah, and it was something I did like to do to your scout team was to take a picture of, of uh, you know, from huddle and point out where they were tackling the ball carrier who made the fake, and the ball was way outside of them on the perimeter. <laughs> You took great pleasure in that. That's that's what really bothered me. <laughs> well, was that coaching? What what does it mean on the script when there's there's not a call in in that slot? When I didn't put something in the play? Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, we knew something was up. But once see, here's the thing: is, is, is you people listening, you have to have a good relationship with your offensive coordinator. And um, Keith would leave a blank on the script, and well, once in a while he just run a normal play, thinking that. I might think it's a fake. And then he'd run a double reverse pass, um, <laughs> something like that, and just pissed me off. And it was successful. And then, of course, all the offensive coaches, they're laughing. They're, you know, they know they got to me. So you got to have a little fun with it. That's okay to do that because you know what? We need to see it. When it comes right down to it, if you throw that stuff at us as a surprise, then, you know, if we get it, then we did our job. If we didn't get it, we weren't alert enough. So, it, yeah, it's I get mad, but at the same time, I chuckle and say, well, okay, well, we got that one on video, so we have, we have to be able to teach off of that. I have to admit, Coach, that as we went through the years there, towards you know the end of, the, of, of my time there before I moved on, I would just kind of watch you on those plays rather than watching, watching what was going on. Oh. I mean, if I could get you to throw your script up in the air, I knew we, we had a good play. Yeah, well, you did it a few, quite a few times. <laughs> And I respect that. It's gamemanship. I think the kids on the offense knew that if I threw my papers up, that you would be happy. <laughs> and uh, they got a big kick out of it. And our guys on defense knew I'd be pissed <laughs> because we didn't do what we were supposed to do. And I don't have any problems. As long as it happens in practice, I think I can I can live with it. But, yeah, it was uh, – th- those were fun times. Um, Absolutely. And, then of course, you know, we were good afterwards. You know, I, I always would remind you – to let I said Keith remind me to, to insult you at another time <laughs> <laughs> so we would have fun with it well coach you have an interesting story I think you know I'd like to share especially this time as we're we're waiting for the Cavaliers to uh, begin the the Eastern Conference Finals mm-hmm. uh, you had I guess the the privilege of coaching one of the best athletes in the world in LeBron James he actually was on the high school football team that you were the head coach of. Talk to us a little bit about LeBron and, and that experience and seeing him now as, you know, in, in the position he's in. Well, it's once in a million. And I was working at camp uh, with my buddy Larry Kimbaum down at St. Louis. And it was after LeBron's freshman year, full freshman year, when he they won the state championship and he played for me. And I told those guys, I said, look, here's the deal. Remember this name, LeBron James. He's going to be famous. They laughed at me. I said, I'm just telling you right now. They're not laughing now. When uh, I hired Keith Dambrot the year before LeBron got there, but LeBron was with Keith since the fifth grade. AAU, Keith had a clinic at the Jewish Center, and those guys showed up, his group. And then when he took the job, 
LeBron was in eighth grade. The next year, LeBron shows up. And to my surprise, we knew he knew he was special. We didn't know anything about him. Him and Sean Cotton and McGee and P-Dub and his, his group of guys to play football. And and uh, I don't know if he was doing me a favor because I hired him or he just thought it would be good for those guys to uh, to play football and get that football mentality. But uh, nonetheless, we we're happy it happened because, well, I think we watched LeBron and Sheon uh, especially. They only played maybe one or two games as a freshman, and then we moved them up. They played one or two games as a JV guy, and we moved them up. And uh, uh, eventually, LeBron started making some unbelievable catches and doing some spectacular things with the ball as a freshman. And we knew he was good. Then freshman year, the basketball season, they win the state championship. And I just remember, because I was the athletic director, I got to sit in the loge down at the Schottenstein right before the half. We were playing, I think it's Canal Winchester. And uh, the usher was sitting there with us watching the game. And uh, LeBron throws an interception on the basket. And their star guard from Canal Winchester gets a half court. You know, he's dribbling the ball, going to open shot to the layup. LeBron wheels around, and as the guy's laying the ball up, he slams the ball against the backboard, hawks the ball down, and does it like a, I don't know, what kind of big-ass dunk. <laughs> and that team just folded. And, and the guy, the usher, just said, I've never seen that before, ever. And he'd been there 20-something years watching high school basketball. I go, well, he's pretty special. And from then on, obviously, uh, his sophomore year, he caught maybe 45, 50 passes, became All-State. And, you know, again, it was a pleasure to coach, a coachable kid. I think I, we had maybe one run-in with him, just, you know, just like normal kid. wasn't bad. It was a fun 16-year-old having a good time playing ball. I left after his sophomore year, and uh, then again, they won another state championship his sophomore year uh, in, in the same kind of spectacular mo- uh, fashion. And the thing we had to work with was the crowds. And we got, we sold thousand season tickets. Uh, we had to move venues from, you know, 1,300, 1,600 seats to 6,000 seats and they were sold out. Yeah, and again, it's once in a lifetime to be uh, able to say, I coached a kid like that. But I give him credit. I, I think he listened to the right people. Keith Danbrod is a great coach. Uh, I think throughout his decision making processes, he, especially in the younger years, he, he would listen to Keith. Uh, and and uh, he used to be uh, uh, honored for that because I think it's one of the things that when young kids growing up in the inner city, south side of Akron, and could go any direction, uh, he chose to go the right direction and made the best of his decisions doing the things he's doing. Great story. Absolutely great story. Yeah, it's neat to be able to coach a guy like that. You had uh, another great player on the football side of things that you coached at the University of Akron, and Jason Taylor mm-hmm. uh, was one of your position players. Um, obviously, he went on to do great things in the NFL. What was it like, you know, the experience coaching that kid and seeing him grow and obviously then progress through the NFL, becoming a, a Pro Bowl player? It's another uh, really special story. I mean, we took over, I believe, in 1995, and – they uh, fired Jerry Faust, and they're one in ten. Kids were kind of bailing out, and not doing well academically, and and we had to go in there with the new staff. And really, Jason Taylor was one of Jerry Faust's recruits. Obviously, very talented because he's. I think he. I don't know if he started on the basketball team, but he played basketball. I mean, his his uh, he had the ups. I mean, he could dunk behind his back and all that kind of good stuff. So a very talented athlete, but he was also a linebacker. And you got a six-six outside linebacker. And my feeling was, as a D-line guy, 
as we watched his junior year, he made a lot of plays blitzing. Okay, so I don't know if he made that many plays dropping into coverage and having to read and react like linebackers have to do. Uh, and we've had this debate. We're talking about, what are we going to do with Jason next year? I said, well, you know, tight end coach wanted me to play tight end. And people don't know this. He's a hell of a long snapper. I coach long. He, he is a very talented long snapper. And he didn't long snap for us because we had one a guy that's just a little less than him. Since he was a starter, we didn't use him. But I think I helped him in the combines. But we didn't know what to do with him. And I said, okay, we need to put his hand down. I mean, come on. I mean, let's, you know, let's wait till the summer. I know we need to do it in the spring. But then I got, you know, a very limited time to get him ready to do the things we just talked about as a defensive end play, the perimeter stuff and all that stuff. Take some teaching. Well, long story short, as spring ball went along, I lost two defensive linemen with bad thumbs. Weird. Just for some reason, thumbs were in. They got damaged and they couldn't play. So we moved. We had to move Jason down in order to get the team squared up. So I have eight guys and the rest is history. Once he put his hand down, he was, I mean, unbelievable speed. And his breakout game, I believe, was against uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, it was a back game. Not very well attended for the first time. We used that third cause of 30,000. People thought it was going to be a disaster. The weather was bad. He took Drunkenmiller and just gave him all sorts of problems. And to me, that was his breakout game. And again, he had a really good senior year, but the ceiling was there. I mean, his greatness was going to come after uh, that his senior year because he went to the combines and did the things that six foot six guys can't do: run a four, five, six, or you know, he, his arm span was just tremendous, and his speed coming off the ball. And he was a smart player. You know, from me, you know, just getting his hand down and getting used to that position was just fortunate for him that we had two broken thumbs and then he moves down. We went from 104th in defense, to like 45th <laughs> because of him. <laughs> and, uh, and Jason was always good. He came after he got drafted in the third round. He came down and talked to my kids at St. V and showed him his Lexus and gave him a pump up talk. His being in the NFL was going to be influential to a lot of kids. And I think it has been. And LeBron's the same one too. But yeah, it was, it was neat to see the progress he made in the NFL. Cause you know, you don't know what, Third round, he was the MVP of the the games he was in for the um, All Star games, uh, and it's just it's a tribute to him because both those guys, yeah, they had some help along the way, but they they're the ones that guided themselves to go the right direction and and not look back and not get in trouble. Uh, you know, the issues that a lot of these star athletes are in today, they got to look at those two guys and say, hey, this is a great success they both had because he did it right. And I think yeah. that's a tribute to both of them guys. Coach, I got a few questions for you. I certainly have learned a lot from you, and I want our listeners to have that opportunity as well. So kind of a few questions focused on some things you've learned. The first being this, what's a mistake you made as a young coach, and what did you learn from it? I've been really lucky. I've had some guys uh, that kept me in line. I think the one thing I, I made a big mistake is I was a Kenyan. And, you know, again, I was, our practices were running over a little bit and you know I was getting in that more is better mentality not that I didn't overdo it I just had you know 15 20 minutes finally my defensive course says, coach it's two and a half hour practice we gotta cut this thing down he, he wasn't I'm being nice he was more <laughs> he's more verbal than that and and that's why I started respecting the other coaches their time you know uh, I think as a young coach you have all the time you need but you got to respect the other people's time 
and I wasn't doing that. And then I really learned a lesson, and that was in my Kenyan days. Maybe the first year I was a head coach there, I'd been 89. And I think I learned learned that the most. Otherwise, I think the other thing, I could have done a better job of young I tried to get more uh, knowledge. Uh, I really think, again, I limited myself sometimes to not researching things out because I'm a ready, fire, aim guy. You know, mm-hmm. I like to get out there and just do it. I had to get more discipline and, and try to be more organized, more organized where I really was more of a shoot from the hip. I kind of still am. But at a point where I think I use it as a strength and not as a, a weakness. I always found myself guys who had, we had Mark Johnson on the staff and Dave Dole in the last four years. And those guys are, they're ready, aim, 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 fire guys. And I'm a ready firing guy. And I think we balanced out. I think you really, really need to do that. That to me, as, as a young coach, you got to be very, very conscientious of other people's time, especially your staff members and your players to think that you're going to rule them effectively after a certain amount of time it's something I, I almost got myself in trouble with, but I do remember going there. And I really do believe that's one of the biggest lessons I've I learned as a young coach. What's the best coaching advice you received in your career? I'd say, you know, being prepared. I, I think the, the biggest thing is don't go to the point where you're, you're going to overdo it. You know, like I said, sharpen a blade dull, but I think, I think you gotta be prepared and you gotta be yourself. I think one of the biggest co- things coaches make a mistake is, is that they try to copycat a style of coaching that's just not their personality. And, and you see it. You see a guy who's pretty soft-spoken try to be a hard-ass, and he, it doesn't work. Kids respect who you are and how you present yourself. I mean, try to be a – I won't say disingenuous. I think a lot of guys were trying to, to maybe mimic a coach that they were under that was successful, and this is the way I'm going to do it. it. It just doesn't come out right. Never did that. Never, never would do that. I think that's a huge part of the game. And that's why people last a long time in it is because they can be themselves and they're comfortable with that. Uh, I really do believe that's a huge, huge part of it. I'm thinking of something else. I can't, it's on the tip of my tongue, but, you know, when you get into the game in order to have longevity, you, you have to have perspective of yourself that's going to be honest. This is what I do. And, and, not, and not be phony. Not be phony about it. So be yourself, uh, be prepared, and, and respect the game. Because football, to me, is a game that has – it rewards those who are not only coaching hard, but they respect the other parts of the, the balance of the game. If you're too much socializing, too much partying, you're going to fail in your, your football and your family life. You know, your family needs to eat, so you, got, you can't do too much with your family. Then you won't have a job. So all that balance between all three aspects of it – it's the reason why I really believe that I've had just my 40th year and not too many years I can say I regret it. That's the Meyer way. And uh, <laughs> when it gets, when the quality of life issue gets in the way, I'm getting out. Just as simple as that. Well, Coach, uh, the, the balance certainly is something I have learned from you, and I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. And I have one final question for you. In, in looking mm-hmm. at everything you've done, what's the one thing you would point to as, as the thing that gives – your teams, your players, your coaching staff, the winning edge? Without a doubt, unity. Unity, confidence. Uh, I think those two aspects, I'm not a big goal guy, but one thing I am is somebody who has a vision. And every time we've done something really well, I've visualized it. Not that it was a goal. I think everybody has goals and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think you have to have a vision and unify behind it. And everybody's going to do their part individually 
to accomplish that vision. When I was in high school, we visualized ourselves as state champions because we had a great bunch of guys, and we won it. When I was in college, we had a great bunch of guys. We visualized ourselves as national champions. We went to the national championship, didn't win it. But we knew something was special there. We were unified behind it, and the kids, I believe, did it. Coaching-wise, we knew we had good teams. Uh, we all worked hard to get our guys in the best position. And the other aspect is I don't overcoach. I, I really don't overcoach. That's what I meant to talk to you before, but I think you coach to the kids' abilities to comprehend what you're talking about so they can play fast. If you're unified behind a common vision and the, and the kids are excited about it, that'll keep them in the weight room. That'll keep them focused in the meeting rooms. That makes them wake up in the morning looking forward to play the game. Coach, thanks for taking the time to uh, talk ball on the podcast. I know you and I will obviously have the opportunity to talk a lot more ball at other times, but uh, thanks for being here. All right, my man. Always a pleasure, Keith. Thank you.